Welcome to Money Club with Chris and Chris, a journey through the history of Simeon Cinema. I'm Chris Mattiello. And I'm Christian Larson. And this is episode 10, Project X from 1987. And joining us today is a special guest, Dr. Daniel Salerno. Dan, welcome to the show. It's wonderful to be here uh, <laughs> in my capacity as esteemed scholar and expert. Really happy to participate. This is the first time we've ever had a actual PhD on the show. It's perfect since he's, uh, I, I believe, if I, if I got the, the background correct, you teach ape flight simulation, correct? Well, technically, it's English literature. Oh, okay. I see where I got, I got it wrong. There are a few ape, I think, flight simulator scenes in the uh, Elizabethan canon, I think. <laughs> Double check that. But, uh, you know, I, I think I can wing it. <laughs> We'll be okay. So, Dan, this is this is a movie that was a big part of your childhood, I'm assuming. Yeah, like many children of the uh, late 80s, our video libraries didn't mostly consist of, you know, things that we purchased, but were things that our mothers thought we would enjoy that they recorded off of, uh, you know, either cable broadcasts or HBO or whatever, and were hand-labeled and sitting on the, uh, on the bookshelf. And this was one of my favorites that I watched uh, again and again probably between the ages of 9 and 10, I guess. So, yeah, we didn't have a lot of options back then, but I've certainly seen it a number of times, and I guess I feel qualified to contribute some kind of discourse <laughs> on it, scholarly or otherwise. This movie made a big impact on me when I was a kid. It wasn't something I watched a lot, because it was one of those movies like Pee-wee's Big Adventure or The Secret of Nim, where there was something really disturbing about it, where I only had to watch it once and I was mm. good. And watching it for the first time in at least 20 years, I was trying to think of what exactly about it just burned itself into my brain as a kid. And it was the death of Goliath, which we'll get to, I'm sure. Yes. And, yes. and, and, yeah. something, about, yeah. and something about that scene really, really affected me as a kid. And in general, the chimpanzees, something about their faces just had this capacity to generate so much empathy. I feel like with a, a young viewer, especially, especially, you know, Virgil, the main chimpanzee character, they, they managed to find the sort of the most somehow expressive chimpanzee on earth <laughs> to play that role. And it was just impossible not to be drawn into their plight on some level. We've talked about this before on this podcast, that chimpanzees have a way of just evoking mm. such sympathy something about their faces are probably the most expressive of all the primates and they're also able to do all these cute little tricks but correct me if i'm wrong and i'm not a uh, you know i'm not a, a primate biologist or anything but i believe like a lot of these you know 80s movies and you know, this sort of canon of of friendly chimpanzee film is a little bit misleading because are not chimpanzees actually sort of vicious animals in the wild, like really mean, kind of murderous types of primates? I, I, I think that's true, isn't well, it? Well, we went into this a lot when we were actually during our discussion of, of Ed starring Matt LeBlanc. Um, yeah. It's that uh, whenever you see a chimpanzee in a movie, it's a young chimpanzee because once, right, once right. they get into their adolescence they're belligerent and kind of difficult to work with so whenever you see a chimpanzee in a movie it's either very young or very old wow. so these are the ones that uh that are cute and adorable i should have listened to the whole podcast <laughs> come on man do All your right. homework before i yeah yeah i know we encourage everyone to do the same 
So, Chris, why don't you tell Dan about our first uh, little challenge that we give our guests? Sure. We, we like to play a game here called 12 Monkeys. And since you're a words guy, I feel like you shouldn't have much of a problem with this. We challenge the guests to summarize the movie in 12 words or less. <laughs> I feel like I'm on, I'm on a weekend edition, like NP1. I know. <laughs> yes. This is our wait, have... wait, don't tell me. Um, okay. Chimpanzee. Uh, <laughs> Good start. Learns. Good start. Chimpanzee learns sign language. Stolen by military. Averts nuclear disaster and escapes. Nice. Nice. Right on the nose. Congratulations. Right on the nose. Missed a few key plot points, but. And, and I might point out that that's a bit of a misleading description. Uh, nuclear disaster. Well, Why? I mean, nuclear disaster. You hear that, and <laughs> you, you think something. But it, it, you know what? Technically, you, well, locally, yeah, right? It was a local nuclear disaster. <laughs> right, right. A local. It wasn't gonna like melt down <laughs> all of uh, yeah the eastern seaboard no, or anything. No. Okay, sure thing. That would have made it a. a <laughs> that would be the re. That would be the 2016 reboot. Well, we'll um, directed by. We'll get- uh, Bad robot. We'll get to that. Don't worry about it. Let's start it off. There's a scrolling intro, Star Wars style, that tells us about an Air Force program that trains chimpanzees. And it goes right into a scene that we've seen before in these Monkey Club movies. Carefree animals in the wild and poachers slowly Mm. approaching them. Yeah, Uh, we've seen this time after time. I mean, really the beginning and the end we've seen a million times in in a lot of these Monkey Club movies. I'm always a little hesitant about movies with scrolls, so this one didn't start off. It didn't give me too much hope, honestly. But it got better. It certainly got better. (laughs) Well, so that's a kind of trope then, right? You know, this sort of idyllic uh, natural environment being encroached upon by sinister humans, right? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Of course. Especially because the monkey that we're introduced to, who we later find out is named Virgil, at least by Helen Hunt, he is obsessed with birds he's obsessed with flying and that makes his capture even more depressing yeah we get that early shot of the toy bird in helen hunt's weird chimpanzee school right well this is virgil sort of fixating on this is before we even get there he's he's like in a tree and he's pointing at actual birds and he's getting really excited he's a chimpanzee that wants to be a bird He's like trans species, I guess. Now that just makes me wish that, uh, well, you know, we'll get to the ending, but it makes me wish that ending scene had a Devil's Rejects-esque Freebird playing over it as as he boarded the plane. <laughs> and maybe he machine gunned. Well, all right, before we get to that. So, yeah, he's yes. captured by poachers, and it leads to a montage of him being sold in some sort of generic third world port town. Set to shock the monkey, which I think was a little mm. on the nose. Yeah. And the guy who's selling the monkey to the vendors, or whatever, I don't know how this works. Again, this this is reminding me a lot of Born to be Wild, because the whole opening is kind of the same, where the monkey is caught in the jungle and he's sold to the poacher, and... The guy on the dock is played by character actor Dick Miller. You've seen him in everything, mostly the films of Joe Dante. He's on this dock and he's like, all right, uh, 
hepatitis, meningitis, cancer. Like, uh, he's selling all these monkeys off to researchers who are going to give them these diseases? It seemed pretty disturbing. I was actually struck by the sort of um, kind of generic nature of the... I was wondering where that port town was supposed to be. (laughs) Conveniently unnamed, you know, just sort of, oh, hellhole in Africa somewhere or whatever, you know. I'm pretty sure I read in the goofs section on IMDb that among the animals in this African port town were several South American animals. So it, it, ah. it was, they didn't really care. No. <laughs> what would we do without the goofs section of IMDb? <laughs> so Virgil gets sent off to stay with lady scientists. Jean Smart, who's been everywhere, she's done a lot of voiceover work for cartoons, and Helen Hunt. And everything is great for Virgil. Oh, just wonderful. You get some cool little uh, visual storytelling here where it's this kind of like a six-minute montage where he's he's being trained. And they do some interesting visual storytelling. It's like a reverse Dr. Manhattan, where in Watchmen, as he... Uh, as he loses his humanity, he sheds his clothing. As Virgil becomes more and more capable of doing things that, like, a baby would do, uh, he starts to gain clothing. Like, you see him the first time naked, then in a diaper, and then he's got a, uh, an E.T. hoodie on. Uh, so, like, he's, he's becoming a little little human monkey man. You're supposed to feel oh, for him throughout this. And his little polo shirt? Adorable. He just Vir- keeps getting more adorable. Virgil is really cute. I would wager if we yes. were doing a cute monkey tournament at the end of, of Monkey Club, he might be a one seed. Probably the cutest monkey we've seen so far. I was actually struck by that as well. I mean, that is the cutest chimpanzee by far like, on the face of the earth. It must have been. And it, it, it's a big part of what makes the movie work. He has this sort of deep wisdom in his eyes, but also like the helpless cuteness of a, of a human infant almost at the same time somehow. In the medieval Latin, they would have called it the sort of puer senex, like somehow an old soul, but this really youthful appearance. It's something about, I don't know, perfect casting by the... <laughs> The chimpanzee mm-hmm. casting director, whoever that yeah. was. Yeah, he's got the uh, he's got the Pixar eyes come to life. <laughs> so, what do you make of his um, his alligator? Why an alligator? I'm not sure why, but it's actually been a recurring trope in these monkey movies that a monkey will have a little stuffed animal. Shakma had a stuffed animal. Clemens from Funky Monkey had a stuffed animal. Yeah. It just adds to the sympathetic nature of these characters that they have something that they're treating as a child right and yeah virgil has an alligator and he they write his name on it and i knew that as soon as they wrote his name on it that it was going to play a big part in the story and it does and he's having a great time with helen hunt she's teaching him sign language and he is still obsessed with flight he's pointing at a toy plane that's hanging from the ceiling. But again, just like Born to be Wild, she loses her funding and has to say goodbye to Virgil. And I I mean, I don't know if any of you guys uh, checked her IMDb, but is Helen Hunt like the Helen Hunt that, I mean, she's certainly not the Helen Hunt that we know, but she's, is she at least kind of famous at this point? What do you mean? Well, I feel oh, like she's oh, not like oh, mid-90s oh, yeah, yeah. Helen Hunt, obviously, because it's 1987, no, I, but I, she just takes a smoke break for 45 minutes of this movie. I don't think she was an A-lister by any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> she's billed up there pretty high. I wonder if that's just, uh, I mean, I didn't know what, notice where she was billed in the actual credits, but on the DVD, uh, she's, she's right up there, and I imagine that's 
Uh, this was something that was probably re-released during the the, the peak right. days, the Mad About You era. Right. Mad About You days, yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, she was a teen actress. I'm pretty sure she was in that movie with Sarah Jessica Parker, uh, Girls Just Want to Have Fun. So she'd done some stuff before this, but she was at the same point in her career as Matthew Broderick, where they were both, I'm guessing, in their early 20s, mid-20s, prime breakout time. And yeah, so the monkey is sent away. And she thinks it's going to be sent to a zoo in San Diego or something. But it's actually sent to the <laughs> to the Air Force. And now we're introduced to Matthew Broderick's character, Jimmy, I believe his name is. Sure, we'll go with that. <laughs> can I uh, can I just float this guy this question out there to you guys? Since this is a uh, it is a movie podcast as much as it is a monkey podcast. General opinions on Matthew Broderick, I guess, outside of Ferris Bueller. I find him ridiculously charming. He's yeah. like Kevin Klein or Hugh Grant in that anything he does is automatically charming. And at this point in his career, he's young. One of my favorite movies of all time is War Games which I'm pretty sure was a few years before this. I'm thinking like 83, 84. And he's great in that. And and this is sort of like his youthful, before he got his first Bueller swag, he's still sort of naive. More of an everyman. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. I think he's great. Why did you bring that up? Do you not like him, Chris? Well, it's just interesting where, like, uh, I mean, you guys were saying, I think you guys are a little older than me. You guys were saying before that you grew up with this movie. I was born the year after this movie came out. So, uh, or the year before the year oh. before this movie came out, I apologize. Um, so I did not have this movie growing up. And it's just interesting because most of my early exposure to Matthew Broderick, before I eventually, you know, got Ferris Bueller, was like his mid-90s rom-coms, like Addicted to Love, and then the terrible Godzilla movie. And for oh, me, gosh, where, yeah. you, you call him almost like a, an American Hugh Grant. To me, he's like a, like the parallel line is like David Schwimmer, where any, anything he does is just kind of mopey and pathetic. Um, so I had a very uh, different perspective on him. And uh, I found him more likable than usual in this movie. I guess boy Matthew Broderick is much better than uh, adult mopey sad sack Matthew Broderick. Now, the only mature Broderick role I could really think of that I enjoyed would probably be Election. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, from his sort of second phase. Still a sad yeah. sack role, though. Um, yeah, definitely still a sad sack role. You're right. But yeah, if you haven't seen War Games, I highly recommend it. But he's supposed Absolutely. to be a wild man. He's introduced in a cell in the brig. Uh, and I'm so glad I get to use the brig in this podcast, but he's in a jail cell with the guy who plays the eccentric paramedic from Born to be Wild, and again, Jesus Christ, we keep getting pulled into that movie, um, and he's talking about how he had a girl up in a plane and an open bottle of champagne, and he gets called before the colonel, and the colonel is like, your father was a great pilot. So we're going to give you a break, and we're going to assign you to this pilot training program. And he gets there, and it's monkeys. Yeah, basically, I mean, this character is sent to purgatory, and Virgil has to guide him through. Am I right, Professor? Uh, very good. <laughs> I like that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Nicely done. He's introduced to William Sadler, who is the doctor in charge of these experiments. And William Sadler, of course, the bad guy in Die Hard 2, the Grim Reaper in Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. Mm -hmm. Yes. The, the stuttering prisoner from Shawshank, one of my favorite William Sadler roles. And Matthew Broderick is told that these monkeys are 
part of this, he expected he'd be working with humans, obviously, but these monkeys get strapped into these basically video game consoles. Yes. Where they're taught how to fly. This, to me, as a, I don't know, eight or nine year old, whatever I was, with a really crappy Atari 7800 flight simulator called F-18 Hornet made me so jealous because their video game looked so awesome to me when I was a kid. And and it's one of those things where, you know, it has nothing to do necessarily with the quality of the film or whatever, but I remember thinking it seemed like a really fun thing to be one of those chimpanzees and get to play that flight simulator all day, you know, before you knew yeah. that there was a sort of nuclear booby trap at the end of it. But, uh, uh, you know, great sort of, I don't know, just kind of neat kind of visuals with uh, the, the way they uh, they designed those flights. I don't know if those are what, real. I don't know if that has anything to do with what, like, actual, you know, military flight simulators in the 80s looked like. I doubt it. But uh, they did a nice job uh, making those look sort of technically cool, I thought. It was basically a tube television strapped yeah. to a chair with some fake airplane controls in front of it. Right. <laughs> Back then, that you know, that seemed pretty cool. <laughs> oh my God, absolutely! And and Dan, you and I were talking earlier, like that looked so cool to us. And a few years later, like this was before you could go to an arcade and sit in something like that yeah. and play a racing or flying game, like Afterburner. This, yeah, this was when we were all playing NES or Atari, and. It looked amazing. All of the shitty graphics were amazing. But the thing that I was thinking this whole time is, can you really teach a monkey to fly a plane? Right. Like, right. I think one of the th- one of these the things that all these movies also do, right? And I, I could be wrong about this again because I'm not a primate biologist, but or, <laughs> but, or they they do tend to exaggerate the. Intellectual abilities of yeah. uh, I, I'm trying to think of a of a, of a less uh, arrogant way to put it, but you know, they they do tend to exaggerate just how adept chimpanzees can be at these kinds of higher order activities, right? I mean, even the sign language, which when when I was growing up, partly because of this movie, I assumed that like oh any chimpanzee can learn sign language, right? It's like of course they're chimpanzees, they're they're really smart, but apparently it's actually rather rare. <laughs> The fact that Helen Hunt could teach a monkey to be fluent in sign language in a year, I think it was, I don't know. Every monkey in these movies, or at least a a vast majority of them, seem to be very expressive and able to tell their humans exactly what's on their mind at any given time. And that's just not the case. Usually. Even the monkeys that do kind of speak sign language spent years and years and years training and even even then it's not quite an exact sign right you, you kind of have to ratchet up the intelligence of the chimpanzees you know to have the plot function typically i would think yeah yeah and i wonder if some of this was inspired by just the the general idea like sure we shot some monkeys into the right. upper atmosphere and space <laughs> but like those were unmanned remotely controlled yeah. crafts. they didn't do um, anything <laughs> right the whole point was just to test if human life could sustain it they maybe were meant to press a button or two but they didn't have to do anything and these monkeys are literally flying or at least flying simulations of aircraft right and i wasn't i mean as a kid i was buying the hell out of it right you know i wasn't buying it this time 
I think most chimpanzee or whatever movies would be about five minutes long if the chimpanzees actually behaved like most chimpanzees, right? It would be the army would have brought them in and be like, oh, this is a terrible idea. Shoot these chimpanzees, you know, or whatever. Yeah, would the they would have... <laughs> They would have shit all over the simulator. Right, they right. would have, they would have stuck their tongue out and smoked a cigarette and left. probably brutally beaten yeah. some, at least oh, some yeah. custodial staff. You know. Oh yeah, real life Monkey Club has about like six or seven kids with their faces eaten <laughs> off. So Matthew Broderick becomes the the guardian of these test chimps. And he's taken under the wing of an of an African American gentleman who already works there. They're hanging out by the monkeys, and Matthew Broderick smokes a lot in this movie, and that was kind of off putting because you don't think of Matthew Broderick as like a badass who smokes cigarettes, and he didn't even look like he was yeah. comfortable smoking <laughs> cigarettes. They did not pull that off at all. You're right. Yeah. No, no, and he, they offer one to one of the. Like, you would think at a government scientific facility, you wouldn't be allowed to smoke cigarettes. It was the 80s. Yeah, but it was still, like, 87. I I didn't, I don't know. But he, but they give a cigarette to one of the monkeys? Yes. I feel like that's irresponsible. Well, at least he got a cigarette. The rest of them get raisins. Like, that's their only, they couldn't give him a better treat. That's how they reinforced you know, good flying with raisins. I thought that was kind of lame. <laughs> M&M's yeah, or something. Well, speaking of unfair, Matthew Broderick bonds with Virgil right away. Yeah. And at one point, he starts to understand his sign language, and he lets him out of his cage, lets him run around, lets him flirt with a female chimp, gives him a apple to eat. The whole mm-hmm. time, all the other monkeys are watching this. Like, that, yeah. that doesn't seem fair. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of almost like a prison movie thing happening there where, you know, he's sort of currying the favor of the guard and getting all these special privileges. Uh, yeah, like, I was surprised is... the other monkeys didn't, you know, gang up and shiv him in the bathroom or something. <laughs> Jump him in the shower. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So there's a montage where Matthew Broderick becomes the custodian of these monkeys. He gives them all names. He labels their cages. Yeah. It's obviously another one of those things where it's setting you up for things to go really wrong. And they do because Bluebeard is promoted to a senior. Uh, And what happens to the seniors in this training program? They get a red collar. (laughs) They level up their fashion and then they go get murdered by radiation. Alas. They get taken down this scary hallway and put into a like version 2.0 of their simulator and it really does look like the kind of thing you'd see in your local arcade in like 1992 and they do the flight simulator thing but at the climax of it a nuclear reactor comes out of the floor and releases radiation (laughs) which normally kills the monkey almost immediately and I, I was just like, what is the point of this? They say something about how these pilots are going to be fighting during a nuclear apocalypse or whatever, so they might be exposed to radiation. But I still could not understand what could justify this. It's funny. In my memory of the film, I remembered it as that they were actually 
they were going to use the chimpanzees as, as fighter pilots in a, you know, in a nuclear war. But that's actually not what, it, in, in, in sort of refreshing my memory today, it wasn't that, right? They weren't actually going to use... No, <laughs> okay. no, no. The monkeys were never meant to fly. Yeah, that was just, just faulty, uh, faulty <laughs> like eight-year-old memory of mine. Okay. It's full-on mad science. <laughs> there doesn't seem to be a real practical... I mean, I guess their idea was, can humans right. survive in these conditions? But that would require them to have, like, put the monkey in this new radiation-proof spacecraft before they exposed him to the radiation. This is just straight up, like, can anyone survive when we pop a nuclear reactor up through the floor? No! No, you can't. <laughs> yeah, it would be one thing if they were testing out some sort of radiation-proof right. suit. Like, uh, but but these monkeys are given no protection. They're just zapped with radiation. And so they want to uh, the test is to see if they can continue, like, or how long they can continue after being irradiated to deliver their payload uh, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, that's, uh, yeah. It's really and because still, still <laughs> stupid, stupid. But yes, I feel like yes, by eighty-seven, yes. that's a thing that we kind of could estimate when it comes to humans. <laughs> yeah. like, there's got to be some formula to figure out, like, oh, you've hit the death point now <laughs> with this much gamma radiation. It's like death or the Hulk. There's no in-between. But it does there. remind us that yeah. in addition to this being, you know, another chimpanzee, you know, ape movie, whatever, it's also a, one of the genre of mid to late 1980s Cold War movies that are shot through yes. with Soviet paranoia. You yeah. Could, you could yeah. also, you know, there's shades here of Ivan Drago or you know, nuclear man or whatever, you know, that would have been very resonant. Maybe by 87, not so much, but would have had some resonance with the audience that they were playing off of, you know. Still, people sure, living sure. with that nuclear, you know, those fears of uh, of nuclear annihilation. And War Games, yeah, and war games was, too, was, for that matter, right? Oh, yeah, War Games was all about that. And it, I wasn't even going into this movie thinking about the Cold War stuff, but that's definitely a big part of it. And this scene actually kind of brought up a question in my mind, since, again, I don't have that childhood, like, nostalgia for this movie, is my question is, who is this movie for? Because these monkey murder scenes are really intense. It, it, you get this strobe light, uh, this, like, red strobe, it goes into super slow motion and close-ups on, like, the monkey's face going from a smile to, like, this horrible grimace, and, like, they touch their heads as if, like, something is going wrong inside of them. It's, a, it's pretty messed really, up, yeah. and I really don't know who this movie is supposed to be aimed at, because I don't think it's kids, and there's not really enough drama or intensity for adults. So is this like a preteen kind of movie? I, I couldn't figure it out. I was saying before that this movie is part of a series of movies from my youth that I saw once and I never had to see again, and they were all kind of aimed towards young children. The Secret of yes. Nim was one of them. Pee-wee's Big Adventure was one of them. Labyrinth about, was one of them. How about Gremlins as a quote as a kids movie that is really disturbing yeah. and terrifying? I think this was an eighties thing, I think. Yeah, I gotta give them credit. They were movies that like treated kids with a level of respect. Mm. For it was like we're gonna show you a bunch of disturbing <laughs> shit, and. Uh, yeah. Some of it you might not be able to handle, but you know what? This is for you. Deal with it. Those movies all had kids in them, though, as as a lead. Like, even Jennifer Connelly in uh, I forget if she's Labyrinth, in, she's in yeah. Labyrinth. That that's another one. Yeah, yeah. Um, but like, they, there's they're all kids that are going through this stuff. It's tough for like a ten year old kid to relate to 
Air Force playboy Matthew Broderick, I feel like. Well, it's with the chimpanzees or... Yeah, than... <laughs> no, you're, yeah, you're right. Yeah, no, yeah. It, you're, it's a really good point that, that, that if this... I think if this movie were being made today in the sort of much more of an era where movies really have to be pigeonholed into this is for kids, this is for adults, or this is for tweens or whatever, this movie would never get made uh, because the point you bring up would immediately occur to the studio, right? But I think Larson's point is a good one is that in, in the 80s, it did seem like there was much more of a tolerance for movies to sort of straddle that line between welcoming in a younger audience, but also disturbing the hell out of them. And they didn't, you know, and Gremlins had no child lead, right? But it was, I mean, you you bring your kids to that movie. I mean, I saw that movie in the theater when I was, I don't know, six maybe. I can tell you now I have a three-year-old son and the movies that we watch together, if they're quote-unquote appropriate for him, are just almost universally insufferably uninteresting (laughs) for an adult. (laughs) <laughs> they're so safe and they're so harmless. You know, the show Stranger Things has been analyzed and talked mm-hmm. about to death, but one of the things that struck me about it that reminded me, and as it was supposed to, of the movies I grew up with in the early to mid-80s was The Kids Cursed. And mm. you would never watch a movie with child leads now where they said shit but you know they weren't afraid and you know the kids in et or something like that they you know <laughs> yeah they dropped some salty it language wasn't safe. salty yeah indeed. i was watching uh, monster squad recently remember monster squad yeah i was just thinking <laughs> the, the bully character played by the kid from Wee's big adventure i had no idea what his name is He's the brother from the one. Oh, you're right. Yes, too, yes, right? yes, he is. Yes. Yeah, he yeah. He uses, I, I won't even say it on this podcast because I, I won't say this word anymore, but the <laughs> yeah. F word gay slur, right? In A little kid saying that word in the movie, like on the schoolyard, in a movie for kids, just as a sort of generic insult, you know? <laughs> sure. Well, God, when I was a kid, I remember watching that and being like, Nards? They said Nards <laughs> in a movie? I, Wow. I, 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 I don't know. I've never heard that word before, nor have I heard it since in any other context but Monster Squad. But maybe it's a regional <laughs> thing? I don't know. We'll save that for the next uh, podcast. It was, written, it was written by Shane Black, the guy who wrote Leap of Weapon, uh, Long Kiss Goodnight, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, a lot of Iron Man 3. Anyway, let's get back yeah, to, the chimps. to Project X. <laughs> All right, the so, monkeys get irradiated. Yeah, yeah. Matthew Broderick is super conflicted and he calls Helen Hunt in the middle of the night. Somehow he got her number and he's like, I don't know how your chimp ended up here, but it's not a good scene. And she's like, oh my God, what the fuck? And he's like, I shouldn't even be talking to you. And he hangs up and he's playing poker. And this is one of the few legitimately comedic moments of this film. He's playing poker at the officer's club or whatever on the Air Force base, and he's winning. And they're like, oh, dude, you're the luckiest guy we know. And he's like, oh, I don't know. And Helen Hunt walks up, and she's like, I want to buy you a drink. (laughs) And he's like, okay. And they stare at him as he walks away. And they have a conversation about Virgil. And then he goes back to the table, and they're all still staring the same way. And that that's just, like, classic. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, Helen Hunt's in town. She looks good in this movie. And, Pretty good, I think, too. Kind of irrelevant, but yeah. Yeah. 
I always, Absolutely. I always kind of liked her in her, even in her Mad About You days. She, oh. Well, she was, I mean, I think Helen Hunt was always the approachable girl. Right. She was the girl that, like, the nerdy, funny guys ended up with. <laughs> right, yeah. All right, good point. <laughs> oh, I, you Matthew know what? One in. second, because we didn't talk. We do have to mention this sort of epiphanic moment when Matthew Broderick learns that Virgil is talking to him by uh, the the United Way. Commer- oh, what, yes, the yes, woman yes. doing well, sign this- language in the corner of the screen? Yes, this this happens much earlier right. in the movie. I know movie, it is, but we but, but it does yes. bear mention, mentioning as a as it a kind does. of absurd an absurdity that really stuck with me through the years. Yeah, uh, I don't know. I mean, I guess there are there are worse uh, affronts to uh, probability in in the history of film, but you know, he sees that woman and yeah, doing it, the help sign right over and over again in the corner of the. T- well, he he goes. Short, shortly after meeting Virgil and seeing him make a lot of motions with his hands, he goes back to his barracks and he's watching TV. And I guess something that was a popular thing in the 80s was having a sign language person talk out whatever was going on in the upper left-hand corner of the right. screen. And he's watching it and he's like, oh, yeah, <laughs> that's what Virgil's doing. It was like... The miracle worker or something, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the the ASL uh, translators were really a lost art until uh, until Mandela's funeral. Oh yeah, and, yeah. Uh, you yeah. Know, the 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 fake ASL translator. Did you did you miss or, that, Larson? Oh no that no no. Yeah. Or the that, um, the press conferences of Bill De Blasio. Oh, with the really sort of uh, emotive oh, yeah. one. <laughs> yeah. But I don't want to be ableist. Yeah, yeah. You know, I don't know. It's the, should probably no, move no. on from this. Hey, listen. <laughs> Monkey Club is going to be shut yeah. down. There's going to be a, uh, a thank God Gawker's dead because they would tear us to pieces. <laughs> oh, sorry. So, um, apologize. Apologies for the uh, sort of uh, diversion there. But we, you like, were just yeah. That's all right. We're getting to the end. We're getting to the. Cl- yeah, yeah. We are. We're getting close because. After Matthew Broderick meets with Helen Hunt, and she's like, I can't believe Virgil ended up here. You gotta look out for him. Matthew Broderick knows that Virgil is in for a terrible fate. And he meets with Dr. William Sadler. And William Sadler's like, we're not monsters here. I wish we didn't have to do this. I wish we didn't have to sacrifice these monkeys. But, you know... We signed up for this. And there are a bunch of senators and generals coming in to watch a demonstration. And Virgil has just earned his red collar. And shit is about to go down. Yeah, Matthew Broderick, he kind of throws a diversion out there. And I, again, we don't know what they're actually there to see other than a monkey right. snuff film. <laughs> exactly. But but they're going to see this and he, he starts spewing some stuff. And, and the big thing that gets him is like, well, even if you would you could see what the monkey would do, the effects of the radiation on a human would be totally different. So this isn't even telling you that much. And the army general's just like, well, well he's got a point there. All right, we'll see you yeah, next I mean, time. No, that's that's enough. That's enough to stop them from seeing this. So it's enough to make us at home be like, what the hell is the point of this yeah, whole thing? They bring Virgil out and they put him in the simulator that killed Bluebeard. And 
they're about to bring the nuclear thing out, and Matthew Broderick runs in, and he basically says everything we said before. They're, he's like, like what is the point of this? Yeah, like Chris said, the generals are all like, harumph, harumph, let's go to our cocktail party, goodbye. And Dr. Sadler is like, you're out of the Air Force, I don't want to see you on this base ever, you're gone. For, for making a completely gone. logical obvious point that should have occurred to anybody. He's, he's going to be drummed out of the Air Force. <laughs> yeah. And so he's kicked out, and he and Helen Hunt decide that they're going to break back in and release the monkeys. This movie had an opportunity to make William Sadler's character an actual character instead of just a plot device, because there are times when he seems to show some sort of empathy towards not just the animals, but people as well. In a scene that we're going to, that we're approaching, he seems very concerned for the lives of people who are in life-threatening situations. And I feel like it, he could have been a more nuanced character yeah. than what he was, and maybe had the, the cigar-chomping general be, be that clearly, like, black-and-white bad guy. It just, it, was, it seemed like a missed opportunity, because Sadler just, his, his perspective flips whenever it's convenient to the plot. And that uh, he didn't he didn't strike me as a very interesting antagonist. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And I have a lot in my notes about how during this monkey jailbreak, Sadler goes back and forth to being somewhat sympathetic towards Matthew Broderick and the monkeys and being this sadistic captor. Matthew Broderick and Helen Hunt try to break in and release the monkeys. And when they arrive... They find out that Virgil has already released all the monkeys, and he's built a tower of cages and crates up to the skylight, and he's trying to smash through the skylight, which, you know, feeds into the whole he-wants-to-fly kind of thing. And when everyone shows up, William Sadler grabs, like, a stun rod and tries to shock the monkeys with it, Shout out to Peter Gabriel. <laughs> and all kinds of craziness ensues. One of the monkeys gives him the finger, which is, you know, classic monkey business. <laughs> but all kinds of monkey business. They're running through the labs. They're smashing stuff. And they go into the little nuclear area with the... And they start smashing the little nuclear test chamber... And that's when, like, shit starts going crazy, and the reactor rises up through the floor. And it's gonna, it's gonna kill them all um, if they don't get out of there. There's like a, a, a safe, like a fail-safe lockdown sequence that's occurring, and uh, and Broderick's trying to get Goliath out of there, and he he stays until the last moment to try to save this ape. And again, like Sadler is saying, like you have to get out of there. Like he's genuinely concerned for all of the people in this secret Air Force base that could all get Chernobyl. Yeah, all of a sudden, Dr. William Sadler is really sympathizing for these people. Matthew Broderick gets out, but not in time for Goliath. And Goliath gets zapped by the radiation. And Goliath is weak. And Matthew Broderick somehow through a window, and again, this is going back to, like, giving chimps too much credit for being smarter than they are, but whatever. He talks Goliath into freeing up the nuclear reactor, 
the nuclear reactor goes back into the floor, everything's fine, but Goliath dies. It's kind of like uh, Star Trek. Yeah, very Wrath of Khan, you're right. <laughs> exactly. I thought the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> Where Spock is in the reactor, and he dies. Matthew Broderick and Helen Hunt are going to escape. Well, actually, before that, William Sadler comes on the intercom, and he's like, hey, thanks for shutting down the reactor. Put the monkeys back in their cages. And Matthew Broderick is like, yeah, sure, we're going to do that. Right. But he doesn't. Because he's got to fly. Yeah, there has to be a scene where Matthew Broderick try. What, what the, he, the, the chimps actually, there has to actually be chimp flight that happens, right? When human flight well, fails. <laughs> well, I mean, they've they've discussed throughout the movie that Matthew Broderick always wanted to be a pilot, just right. like his dad. His dad was like a hero uh, fighter pilot in Vietnam, and uh, he always wanted to be like his dad. And, of course, Virgil always wanted to fly, but we'll get to that. So they run out, and there's an interesting thing I read at one point. Right after Matthew Broderick tells William Sadler that they're going to put the monkeys back in their cages, he says to Helen Hunt, let's get the hell out of here, which is like a, a classic line, but it's dubbed. He didn't actually say, let's get the hell out of here. That was just like a test audience thing that they wanted him to be more assertive. And they all break out. And they all climb into Helen Hunt's car, but there's a twist. They get into Helen Hunt's car, they're going to try to drive away, but Helen Hunt's keys are missing. Yeah. And so they go for a plane. There's a right. plane right next to the car. Oh, okay, yeah, car. yeah, yeah, no. Yes, okay. <laughs> they can't fly the plane because they get the, the military police or whatever, have them held at gunpoint, so Virgil has to fly the plane. They get in the plane, it's Matthew Broderick and Helen Hunt and a shitload of monkeys in the backseat, and they're taxiing down the runway, and a group of military guys shows up and fires right. machine guns at them. <laughs> like, that seems, you know, yeah. a little bit of an overreaction, cavalier use of, even for I feel the like military. cavalier use of uh, automatic firing... weapons is another hallmark of uh, 80s movies. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's so true so Matthew Broderick and Helen Hunt get out of the plane and they're like okay we'll go along peacefully but then the glorious yeah. ending Come on. flying monkeys just like the Wizard of Oz the, the monkeys fly Helen Hunt signs to him right you fl fly right yeah, and he does it he lives the dream yeah he flies a plane they crash in the what? Everglades <laughs> they crash <laughs> well, that would be amazing if, if like there's a glorious takeoff, well, and then they just well, they kind of spiral sort of, down they, into the they, Everglades. They sort of crash. They don't. You don't actually see it, right? You just see the sort of the plane, and you're right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> there's, there's, yeah. there's. They're at the it's wreckage. It's not like a tragic crash, yeah. you know, where they all die. Yeah, but they and crash uh, land the and, right. <laughs> yeah, it was a soft crash. Right. It was. It was the best right. kind of landing you could expect from a chimp. I believe we only see, you know, there Matthew Broderick and Helen Hunt, and William Sadler, and all of the the military bigwigs are at the crash site, and uh, they do say, "We'll wrap it up. Nothing to find here. No one, you know, no monkey could have survived this." Uh, but Matthew Broderick <laughs> does he does see in the woods that Virgil and his his lady chimp friend have survived. I don't remember if we get 
any sign of the other chimps, there might have been some serious loss of life in this plane crash. But at least Virgil survived. Yeah, there were like eight chimps on the plane. It might have been like Aaliyah, where, uh, (laughs) you know, the plane went down because she asked for all of her fur coats to be on the plane. Is that the actual story? (laughs) It's a rumor. There's, There's a moment in this ending that... Uh, I need to address. There's this one suit talking to another, the, the main military bigwig cigar chopper. And he's like, you know, sir, I wouldn't recommend court-martialing this guy. Otherwise, someone will figure out what we were doing here. First off, <laughs> somebody needs to figure out what the fuck anyone was doing here, because we don't know. <laughs> Secondly, yeah, maybe this guy's not getting court-martialed, but Matthew Broderick is going into, like, a concrete cell ten floors below the earth. He is never seeing the light of day again after this. He is going to chimp Guantanamo. That's another thing that reminded me of Bored to be Wild, is that in a lot of these movies, a monkey inspires someone to just basically throw away their entire lives and to just resign themselves to a life in prison just because of how much they bonded with a monkey. I really hope... I don't ever meet a monkey because I might end up bonding with them so much that they will inspire me to throw my life away and commit horrible crimes. Hey, it's not just monkeys. Dogs might tell you to kill people. I mean, it could be anything. Interject briefly because something sort of just occurred to me too when I was thinking about this ending with uh, the whole thing with the military and Virgil on the run with his allies and thinking that he's dead, but actually he made it out and he's alive. One year before this movie <laughs> came out in 1986, a movie came out called Short Circuit. Do you remember Short Circuit? And it just occurred to me oh, how strikingly similar yeah. these two films are. They both feature sort of, you know, things that really appeal to kids. And one, you have robots and the other, you have chimpanzees, right? And one robot is extra intelligent. But he's trying to be controlled by the military, right? The evil military that wants to use him for military-type purposes. But that, the super-intelligent robot with the help of his allies, right? One, the scientist who programmed him. And another everyman-type character who sort of takes him in. Help the robot escape. But in the climactic scene, you think the robot's been killed. And everybody in the military thinks he's been destroyed. But then he turns out at the end that he actually survived. And he gets to live a life free as an intelligent robot instead of as a military weapon. Am I crazy? No, that's (laughs) that's very... The similarities are there. Until you think about Short Circuit 2, in which he's brought out of obscurity... And back right. into the limelight right. of apparently the military stopped caring. Um, also, I feel like both of those movies and probably others, other than the obvious like Mac and Me, I feel like all of them come from executives right. being like, "Well, yeah, what else can monkeys, we do with yeah. ET? How oh, about absolutely. robots? Yeah, yeah, How sure. about monkeys?" Yeah. Well, talking about Short Circuit Two brings us to one of our most popular segments, Chris. Why don't you tell Dan about monkey business? Dan, we'd like to challenge you. You, you, Now you get to become the cigar-chomping, big-wig Hollywood executive and give us a plot summary of what you would pitch for Project X2. Uh, Project X squared? I don't know. Your call. I already had the the, the, the sort of half a joke earlier about what the Project X really would be like, but I'll go with a pure sequel. All of the military personnel... And Helen Hunt and Matthew Broderick also 
few weeks after the conclusion of uh, these events, begin to come down with this horrible, debilitating disease. And they don't know if it's like radiation sickness or some kind of virus. Wow. But then they get worried, they get put into quarantine because they're worried it's got to spread to the general population. But what they really need are Virgil's antibodies, right? Because he's like, uh, what do they call that? Patient zero or whatever. I don't know. You know, so he could be a kind of like one of those those epidemic movies, right? And they have to go into the Everglades and find the chimpanzee community that started up there and convince, you know, and Matthew Broderick has to sort of convince Virgil to come back or Helen Hunt's going to die. Meanwhile, the military wants to somehow use Virgil's blood to turn it into some kind of uh, biological weapon that they can use against the Ayatollah. Right? Or something like that. <laughs> the Ayatollah. Yeah. That's great. I don't know. This is getting really dark. I don't know. But no, go ahead. <laughs> keep going. Keep going. And, I love uh, it. You know, but then there's a happy ending. So cure everybody of the disease. Virgil probably dies heroically, giving a sure. blood transfusion to Helen Hunt or something. <laughs> and the military guys get sent to Leavenworth. I don't know. Happy ending, right? And the Ayatollah ends up fine at the end, too. <laughs> That's part of the happy ending. You could All right. call it the, uh, the Project, Project Y. X2. No. Oh, Project Y. I was thinking Project <laughs> X squared. Yeah, Project colon, X squared. Colon. But remember, it was the 80s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so it wouldn't have, it would have been like, it would have just been like Project X part two or something, you know. Or yeah. Project X, like... the Dream Warriors. Yeah, it's not like today where every sequel is the resurrection or like right. Yeah, some kind of noun or participle. There you go. So I'll pitch that. That was great. Have uh, any of you guys seen the other movie titled Project X? I believe it's like a found footage teen movie or something like that. Yeah, it's about a party. I think is that the McLovin movie or is that a different one? Uh, No, no, it's it's no, that's the other one. Sorry, it's like the millennial version of. A high school party movie, right? Like, and yeah. no monkeys. I didn't. But what's the movie? What's the one I'm thinking of then? With the but Super I bad? feel like if there were if there was a monkey involved, it would probably be like something that would make the monkey in the Hangover movies look dignified, right? Like, yeah, something... he'd probably get raped or like thrown in a pool or beer bonged or something. I don't. Know. Something far beneath the dignity of Virgil. <laughs> yeah. Virgil but needless to was, say, it, it was very confusing for us 80s kids when that movie came out. You know, for a brief flickering moment, you might have thought there was like a, you know, a, an actual reboot of Project X. Well, it certainly has affected my Google searches about <laughs> yes, this movie. Right. <laughs> well, all this talk about Virgil brings us to our final segment. Apes versus humans. So we like to have a little bit of a roundtable discussion where we pit the apes against the humans and try to figure out who was the best actor in this movie. And uh, we've been keeping a running score, and I think it's getting tight. Uh, so this could be a big one down the stretch. Uh, Dan, what do you think? Who was the best actor in this movie? Was it a human, or was it an ape? Well, I, I sort of already gave away my answer very early in the in the show here, but I think there's no question that Virgil is the performer of this movie. His face makes the movie. He does more with his eyes, with his facial expressions than any of the human characters do in this movie to generate feelings in the audience. So I'm going to go with Virgil. I'm going to go with Ape. 
I have to say, like, we're looking at Matthew Broderick and Helen Hunt and a lot of other pretty notable character actors at a good point in their careers, and they're all doing great jobs. But what really tugged at my heartstrings, what really made me engaged in this movie were the performances of the chimpanzees, of Virgil, Bluebeard, all of them. Yeah. I gotta go with the chimps, or in this case, the apes. Yeah, I think it's gonna be a clean sweep. Uh, you guys mentioned that kind of Wrath of Khan scene before, um, and before that, when he first finds the initial ape that's radiated to death, who he was becoming friends with, he comes back to the monkey room and gives... I guess, like, the closest thing to the equivalent of a monkey screaming con. It's just like this this guttural <laughs> chimp howl, and it's great. Yeah. And uh, yeah. it's 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 wrenching. And um, he also, you know, we've talked about a monkey club, how monkeys do, like, four tricks. Like, the ca- stuff will happen, and then it'll cut to the monkey, and he'll cover his eyes, or he'll go, or something like yeah. that. Virgil seems to be doing a pretty decent job of putting, you know, hands at 10 and 2 and, and moving that flight simulator uh, a little bit, and he, he he moves a stick shift at one point. He does a hell of a lot for for what they usually have monkeys do in these movies. It must have been a lot of work. I mean, I, I, props to the uh, animal trainer handler people who were getting them to perform like this. Because there were even a couple times when I was watching the movie where I was thinking that shot might have been a guy in a suit or something, right, or whatever. But no, it was always that the chimpanzees were doing it all, right? <clears throat> yeah, I mean, it it's very rare that you see a monk uh, a monkey movie where it's just a chimp like usually there are some shots where it's like a a midget in a chimp suit or whatever but this was all pure chimps and seas and they all did a great job so i think it goes without saying that the point goes to the monkeys for this one Mm -hmm. bravo absolutely Uh, does anybody have any last thoughts you know, enjoyed this more than I thought I would. I don't know if it's something I would revisit regularly, but if it's on, you know, if it's on TV one day in that long list of cable channels that exist now, and you've never seen it before, I think it's worth a watch. It's short, Dan, too. It's were... like 80 minutes. It's It moves fast, and that's it's that's definitely got it. It's going for it. Dan, what were your thoughts on this revisit? Oh, just, I mean, I really enjoyed taking another look at the movie. I think it holds up pretty decently. You know, it, it it hasn't become absurd or ridiculous uh, like movies so often do 30 years hence. But I, I enjoyed this conversation very much, and uh, <laughs> I think this podcast is going right in my tenure file. <laughs> <laughs> well, Daniel, it has been such a pleasure having you uh, with us tonight. Uh, I just want to yeah. say one piece of trivia. Whenever the monkeys were screeching and shouting, those were human voices dubbed in because Uh, the producers of the film felt as if they weren't human-sounding enough. So when the screaming was happening, those were all human sounds. Um, So a little fakery there. Yes, but uh, I loved it. It was... I forgot my bit of trivia, but it's a little late for it, but you know that... No, go ahead. I'm sure you read about how Bob Barker sued... Or yes. no, was sued was sued by the production company. No, 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 no. Bob Barker sued this movie because he felt that the chimps were being mistreated. Right, right. But in response, the Humane Society of America, which oversaw the film, countersued Bob Barker. 
And it was a very dramatic legal battle. The guy uh, from The Price is Right. Yes, the spare new to your pets guy. Yeah, I don't even know where that would go, where the appropriate place to discuss that in the podcast would be. But uh... Well, you know what? It's right here. That's <laughs> right. where it is. I also caught some trivia on this. Uh, I saw that the monkey who portrayed Virgil and all of the uh, monkeys in this film, not long after this, they all retired from film and all got placed in a nature preserve together. So they all got to uh, live out their days like a, like a monkey rat pack in some uh, <laughs> preserve somewhere, which I mean, hey, it's uh, well-deserved. Virgil earned it. Yeah. Fuck you, Bob Barker. They're hanging out and they're having a great time. <laughs> mm-hmm. And is it overly pedantic of me to say that chimpanzees are great apes and not monkeys, right? Yes, yes. Okay. Yes. We, I, I figured it's just a it's a kind of house style. It's a kind of house style, right? I get yeah, it. I get yeah, it. Yeah, of course. All right, edit that course. part out. <laughs> Makes me sound like a anyway. jerk. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, thank, thank you guys for so much us. for 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 inviting me uh to, to participate and uh oh, it's, been, it's it, been a lot of fun. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you to Dr. Daniel Salerno. Check out all of our back episodes of The Monkey Club accessible through cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me because we're part of the Cage Club Podcast Network. You can also look us up on Cage Club Podcast Network on Facebook. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe us on iTunes. I'm Christian Larson. I am Chris Mattiello. And that was Dan Salerno. Oh, I'm here. Dr. I'm still, Dan. I, I'm oh. not an official part of the <laughs> thing. I, and I'm Dan Salerno. <laughs> I'm Ned Needleender. And, no, right, sorry. <laughs> and thank you for joining us. And we'll see you next time on The Monkey Club. Ciao. Have your pets spayed and neutered. <laughs>